What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. This is podcast number 30, Gianni. Wow, shit, man. And as always, with me, my brother Gianni Harrell. What's up, what's up, everyone? What's up, bro? So 30 podcasts is a lot of podcasts, man. I'm, and I feel like we're hitting our stride now. You know how like a little bit earlier in the in our kind of reeling off these numbers, I'd say this is more than I thought I did. Now, I'm not looking back, bro. I want people to subscribe. I want people to listen because I think me and you got something good here. Oh, yeah. We're, we're flowing. We're 30 in, 30 weeks. It feels like we do this in our sleep. <laughs> ah, that's, no, I wish because we still do have to do it every week. That's the thing. <laughs> Um, but our guest today, and I say this a lot, but our guest today is a friend of mine and I'm very blessed to have this man as a friend for selfish reasons, because I'm a super New York giant fan, as we know, and I have a feeling this interview will be a bit different than with our last retired NFL, New York giant defensive player LT, but I have to do this intro right because when I introduced this man at a new heights gala benefit, I folded and I referred to him as a Super Bowl champion as opposed to a two-time Super Bowl champion. So I will not mess that up again. So I have to make it crystal clear to our audience that on our show today is the Vice President of Private Wealth Advisors in the Partners Coverage Group. That was a lot of words, but he's just dope at Goldman, at Goldman Sachs. And... He is a two-time Super Bowl champion. Welcome to the show, Justin Tuck. What's going on, Rich? What's up, G? How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Thank you, my man. Well, are we good now? Two-time champion? Uh, I, I tell people all the time, I'm a little upset with that, man. I got I got eight empty fingers, but I'll, I'll take two time. That's that's good. That's no, but you, but you're cool with the fact that I messed that up now at the gala. You're over it. Listen, you 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 helped me like. You helped submit my speech at the gala, so it was good. You gave me something else to talk about. <laughs> no, man, by the way, Gianni, his speech, like I wasn't very prepared that night, um, which I know you probably think sometimes could be a pattern in how I handle this pod, but I usually speak perfectly off the cuff. That night I was like a little frazzled, um, but Justin came up and just stole the show, and he was such a prolific speaker, and I knew him a little bit at that point, but that really was like a turning point in our friendship. We stayed in touch a lot. Um, I learned a lot about you that night, about your upbringing. Um, and I know that one of our boardroom players, Roz, one of the great talent we have here at Boardroom, interviewed you and talked a, a lot about some of your upbringing. But one thing that I really wanted to know about your upbringing was you came from this really small town in Alabama. And I remember you explaining just how crazy your life now sounds to like Justin Tuck back then. But that was the football story. As a businessman, did you have a knowledge or a love of business as a kid? Um, and were your parents, even if they didn't work in fields like you work in today, were they astute in the world of business at all? Yeah, my mom um, my mom was an accountant by trade, but you know, growing up in the, <laughs> in the area I grew up, there wasn't a lot of opportunity in that regard. So she did, uh, she did work for Russell athletic. So she did textile work for Russell athletic and kind of back office stuff for Russell athletic. My dad worked for Russell athletic as a, as a, as a, I called him an engineer, but you know, he was just a handyman. He did, he did odd jobs here and there, but he, he definitely um, instilled in me just sort of the value of just, you know, work ethic right and i tell people all the time that's that's probably the reason why i've gotten anywhere in life is just because i was never afraid to work and I, in a lot of ways that was always my my passion just going through the processes so um but no I, I mean like i didn't really have a passion about business i didn't know anything about it the only business i knew was like i grew up on a farm so my granddad would you know obviously once you harvest crops you sell them that's the only concept i had of business as a kid and yeah and i figured that was your answer um only because it's also generationally, like I think young athletes now, as, as young as they can start envisioning their career a bit, are paying attention, whether it's through social media or through more traditional means, to just like the wheelings and dealings of the sports world. I believe that. That's why we created Boardroom. But sure. that wasn't something that you probably would have been exposed to. Was your sole mission to play football and get out? Was that your sole mission as a kid when you locked in on football? 
Yeah, man, I, I was late to football, to be honest with you. I grew up a, uh, more of a basketball player, to be honest with you. But, like, in sports in general, I mean, like, growing up where I grew up, it's, it's weird. It's weird. I got kids now who, like, they look at, like, going outside as a punishment. Um, I looked at staying in the house as a punishment. I always wanted to be outside doing something with the you know, neighborhood and, and being out, you know, on a dirt ball field or whatever it may be, man. Just that was what I wanted to do on a daily basis. So, you know, I never really looked at at sports from the regards of trying to make it to the league. I looked at sports as the opportunity to give me a great education because I found out at a really, really young age that if I was good at sports, then, you know, I could get scholarships to these great schools that, you know, and my parents didn't have the, the money to send me to a Notre Dame or University of Alabama or anything like that. So if I was going to, if I was going to do th- anything in sports, my thought was, man, they're paying me to go get an education. And that's, that was my way out. My, my way out at first wasn't to go play in the leagues. Um, it was about, it was about the long term and, and, and making sure that I, I had something in between my ears that, you know, when, when that athletic prowess left me, uh, it gave me an opportunity to do go further in life. So when you went to Notre Dame, I mean, that's that's a kind of uh, rare perspective, I would think, for an athlete, especially an athlete that went on to be so great in his career, is that, you know, even going into college, you were looking at it as a means to an education. Um, and in some ways, it's like the equivalent probably of you thinking about business, right? Like if now you may be going, if, you, if that same version of you now is going to Notre Dame, you may be thinking like, all right, well, this is, this is affording me an opportunity to learn about life, get an education, I had to go make money. But then it was just to get an education. When you went to Notre Dame, did some light bulbs at that point turn on because obviously you you started to know that you were going to play pro sports sure but you may not have even thought about anything business related when you're in college and may have just again thought of it as an education but was there anything like okay I'm about to go pro is there a, a side of you that started thinking about what that looked like yeah um <laughs> I think for me once I got on campus and realized that you know I can play uh, the game of football at a very high level against great competition, right? Because, um, I, I mean, you get this narrative around growing up in a small town. Yes, you're the man in your town, but, like, what's your competition look like? Like, I, you know, I was obviously playing in probably one of the hottest, hottest states at the time, Alabama. So I thought my competition was good, but I, I grew up in a small school. So the narrative is always like, yeah, you're, you're pretty good in this small pool, but, like, what happens when you get – to the University of Notre Dame and you're playing against the Florida States and the Michigans and the USC's and so on and so forth. Um, you know, what happens then? I still remember it to this day, man. It was, uh, I was, <laughs> I was this skinny kid that they moved to defensive end and because of my speed and just athletic prowess, I was, I was, I was having a lot of success in practice and we went and played uh, a game and i never forget uh, one of the senior O-linemen who I were, uh, I had pretty much you know, had, you know, had some good practices against. He was like, okay, let's see what you do when the lights turned on. And, you know, that was, that was kind of like my narrative up until the moment where I stepped out on the football field and really started to play well at the University of Notre Dame. Everybody was like, yeah, you're this small town kid, but you really haven't done it on the big frame yet. So, you know, when it, when it happened, uh, there will, yeah, at first, no, I don't think I, I still didn't think, because the, the, when you look at the stats, right, and I, I don't have them in front of me, but, like, the fact of the matter is I was I played well in high school. Now I'm at this, this bigger pool in Notre Dame. And to get to the next level, there's, there's always this drop-off. I, I played with kids in high school that I felt like were better than me that didn't get the opportunity to go to a school like Notre Dame. Now I'm there and I'm seeing all these high school All-Americans, and I just felt like at some point in time, my time is going to come where I'm going to drop off. And luckily it didn't, but like, I would probably say my sophomore year, I made all American. And that's probably when my mind switched on like, you know, I can, I can do this for a career. So when, when you were still having a little bit of that self doubt, did you, were you preparing for anything else besides football? Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. No, no, no. So what, what was that? What were you thinking yeah, at that point? Um, at that point in time, I, I had, you know, I was a finance major, uh, business marketing well, business mar- business management major with a finance, um, you know, like understudy. So it was kind of like I was trying to do a double major there, but I ended up doing a, a minor in econ. Uh, 
So my thing was being in a place like Notre Dame, you, you, you got all these kids who they're dead ran businesses or they're CEOs of this and that. And I just ingrained myself into learning more about that space and what it looked like. Because at the, you know, even, even if football was going to work out for me, I had a cousin who played in the league and he, you know, once I got to college, he just started pouring into me like, you know, things that I need to think about. And one thing he told me, I'll never forget NFL stands for not for long. So like in my mind, I was like, even if I do make it to the NFL, man, I'm not going to play, you know, 10 plus years. I'll get a little bit here and, and, uh, and get out and go do something else. So yeah, I was looking for all types of things, right. As far as, um, you know, business-related, you know, avenues, whether that was franchising, whether that was running a real estate group, you know, all type of things that I was looking at because it was around me. It was in this in these circles of people that I was, I was, I was, you know, becoming friends with. So I was asking them questions about how their dad and their mom did it and so on and so forth because I had no personal experience in that. I didn't, I didn't know it. My dad and my mom hadn't, hadn't, you know, showed me that the ropes of that growing up. So I used that my environment to kind of educate me on, on things that I, that that might be out there for me. Um, is there a network that you have today still from Notre Dame, from people that were around that inspired some <laughs> of that thinking? Yeah, man, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I probably would say the best thing about Notre Dame is their alumni um, and the people who, and I, I mean, listen, I'll, I'll be very honest. Uh, when you win a couple of Super Bowls and you're, you're kind of, you know, this, this, this heavily favored athlete, yes, a lot of the alumni want to be your friend a lot of them i want to be connected with you but like in general the alumni in notre dame is just phenomenal once you you're when you're there and you're in this weird bubble where you don't even really understand what it, what it looks like right and then when you graduate you just start getting emails and, and, and connecting with you know some of the more senior people in all types of walks of life whether that's business philanthropy uh you, know, you name it um, so that's something that I didn't necessarily understand, you know, in the recruiting process, they tell you all these things about, you know, Notre Dame is not a four year institution. It's a 40 year institution. It's a lifetime. Right. But you don't really feel that when you're there because you put your blinders on, you go to class, you go to practice, but once graduating and get into the real world, man, it's, it's a, it's a network of people who truly have your back and truly are looking out, uh, for whatever your interests are. You know, that's a, it's funny. That just made me think. A lot of times we do these um, like college seminars and part of our boardroom university program. And yeah. I talk about network heavily because I've really hung my hat on that most of my career because as I was growing and going through ups and downs, it was a network that I could keep pulling on to learn from, to to, to utilize as a, another person's network, right? Like you start getting the network effect. Um, and kids will ask me like, how do I do that? Like, how do I meet these people? And the truth is, is I kind of had to deal with it because I, you know, was in a world outside of college. I think people that are in college that ask those questions really have that network right there in front of them. Like the network is you're at Syracuse university. The network is you're at Notre Dame. If yep. you do have an opportunity to get to college, you know, that four years of building a network is as in my opinion, as important as anything you're going to learn there. If that's what your focus is. Um, when you were leaving Notre Dame, obviously you were as kind of more aware of the environment from what you said, who did you put around you as your team? Like that process of coming out into the draft is always so, you know, I watched it a little bit in football. I get to watch it in basketball, but that's a, that's a crazy time when you're starting to put the people in place to help you manage your career. What do you mean by like Notre Dame alumni or like agent or? No, no, no. We've moved on from Notre Dame, bro. Come on. Okay. Man. I know that everyone <laughs> at Notre Dame wasn't working for you. <laughs> Um, yeah, man, I think, uh, when, when I thought about like agencies, I wanted to, to represent me, I wanted to, I wanted a, a big agency that, um, that felt small. Like I, I wanted a big agency, but like had, wanted to be a part of some, some team that was growing. Um, and you know, my agent from day one was a guy named Doug Henderson. He worked at Octagon. Now he's at Wasserman Group. And like the one thing about the, my experience was I knew what I wanted. I didn't have, I didn't need I really didn't need anyone to bring me ideas. I needed execution around the ideas I had. And that's probably one of the reasons why I wanted a bigger team. I, I wanted the execution around that. Cause like, you know, like I said, like I, I had been thinking about off the field stuff more than I've been thinking about on the field stuff. So I, I, I kind of had a clue on, on what I wanted to do from, 
you know, when I started my charities, um, you know, the type of people that I want to connect with wherever I got drafted. Luckily, I got drafted in New York. Um, that made it very easy to kind of build that 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 network you're talking about, uh, given that it, it seems like New York City is the is the you know the start of all things for you know other than like Silicon Valley now. But like at the time when I got drafted, it was just a great time to be in New York City. Uh, and like so, yeah, my agency was was with Doug Henderson, and, and they you know what they did was when I got drafted in New York, they sent out my own marketing team in New York City, which was phenomenal. So um, yeah, I, I got lucky on that. To be honest with you. That is rare. Um, and by the way, with all due respect to Silicon Valley, New York is still the center. Oh, of it's still, bro. yeah. All right. The, depending on sector, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> New York City is the, I can, you know, I'm, I'm a Goldman, I'm a Goldman employee, so I can't say the words I would say in the locker room, but New York is the she snit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know how you feel, bro. Um, For sure. So you, you get to New York, um, man, you know, I could talk Giants forever. We'll get to that later, but you get to New York. Um, and Strahan's there. Sure. Did you did you see players in the NFL because you were so focused, or not focused, because you're so aware of off the field? Because I think sometimes people get a misconception that if you know if you are focused on business or aware of it, that there may be something that you're compromising on the field. But I know that you don't get to what you did without putting that first, second, and third. But sure. Were there players that you saw in the league because football has less of them that you were like, all right, cool, that's somebody that I could do it like? Because I see Strahan a bit different than your style. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, the great thing about getting – and, like, I'll be honest with you. I'll go, let's go back. Let's go back to the draft. I was supposed to be, like, a, a top ten pick, and then I tore my knee up, and then I slipped to the third round. So now I'm like that guy that's like, uber upset i'm pissed uh, i'm looking at all the defensive players that got drafted before me um and as as all those people are coming off the board i'm just make, i'm literally in my mind checking off teams that they told me they were going to draft me but didn't and so on and so forth there's a certain team down in dallas um i won't say they're a mascot but it's you know it has a cow and a boy in it um that basically said that i was um the type of player that they wanted and they, you know, they had the, uh, they had two first round picks that year, and it didn't happen. But like at the time, I, I can be honest, I I grew up a Cowboy fan because I was in Alabama. Uh, but now I couldn't hate that team more. Than, I couldn't hate them you know, more if I wanted to. Yeah. That's another story. Um, but you know, the it was such a blessing. I walked in the room. I walked in the building as a third round pick, playing behind you know, arguably one of the greatest defensive players to ever play the game. Not even arguably, one of the greatest defensive players to ever play the game. Uh, and it was a blessing because I came in there with a chip in my sh on my shoulder, pissed off. Um, and you got Michael, you got O.C., who wasn't the O.C. that we know now, but he was a young and up-and-coming stud as well. And, I, you know, honestly, my thing was, let me just sit back and watch how these guys do it. That's what I had always, always did in anything in my life. So let me just watch. Michael Strahan has been, you know, a perimeter all-pro, you know, Hall of Fame player. Let me watch what he does. So, honestly, me not getting drafted top 10 gave me an opportunity to go to a pretty decent team and watch from real pros. And I just sat back the first year there and I just watched him work. And I adapted some of the, I adopted some of the things that made him a great football player into, like, my regiment. The same thing on business, right? The viewpoint I had of watching straight work off the field, I, I adopted some of those things. Like, yes, our styles are different, but there are some things about what he did while he was playing that I, I was able to kind of recreate and redo when, when I became, quote, unquote, um, the hot figure on the team, right? So, um, so yeah, I think it, it, you got to look at it. I look at it as a blessing that I tore my knee up and I landed in the third round to the Giants. What was the money something that really pissed you off at the time? <laughs> but, I mean, there, there's some, ob <laughs> yeah, there's man. some obvious yeah. differences between the yeah. contracts of a first round pick and a third round pick, like your plan of preparing your life and being aware of business like that must have really look, come on, man. I'm not trying to rub it in now, but it must have really no, no, fucked you me. up I'm at made, the time. I'm good. I'm good. Not, but like, yeah, at the time I'm laughing because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a interesting story behind the question you just asked me, I'll never forget it. I, you know, obviously, you know, at Notre Dame, I had surgery on my knee 
And uh, I come back. And I came back too early, to be honest with you, because I was like this guy who was slide to be a top top 10 pick. And I was like, I got to come back and be that guy again. So I came back from ACL in like four and a half months, played the first six and seven games at a really high level. And then 10 and set in. So long story short, I had to get a, a, a clean out of my knee my, uh, after my rookie year at the, at the Giants. And the doctor, <laughs> God bless his heart, man. He, um, he doesn't know how to read a room. Like, you don't say these things to a 21-year-old kid. Like, you, he said to me, oh, man, I just you know, I, I went in and cleaned out your knee. Man, that surgery cost you about $10 million bucks. And I was like, thanks, Doc. I appreciate that. Oh, my God, bro. God. That's some shit. Yeah. So, uh, I'm Doc. Like, listen, at the time, but that, I mean, honestly, to be honest with you, when he said that, I went in such a, a like, mode of, like, oh, I got to make that back. Right? <laughs> I got to find a way to make that back that I think it helped me throughout my career. And like, you know, people always ask me like, why do you, why are you never like, like if you hear me talk about things, I'm never like talking about like the Super Bowls. I'm talking about the journey of getting to the Super Bowls or the process of getting to the Super Bowls or, or, or the Pro Bowl or whatever your, your end goal is. Probably one of those reasons because I always tried to find a chip. I always tried to find something to just keep me motivated uh, and that wasn't hard for me. I, you know, I was always motivated in anything I've ever done. But like that extra, that extra whatever to kind of just push you over the edge from a motivation standpoint. And that was something like me dra- being drafted in the third round instead of the first round. That was something I always kept. Uh, the fact that I lost on that amount of money early in my career, I always kept that. The fact that the Giants drafted defensive end at the defensive end, the quote unquote, you know, replace us. And I say us, and like me, OC, and Stray, we always clown about it and like you know obviously great friends with jpp and, and kiwanuka and all like every year they were always trying to replace we kept that stuff we we we, we constantly talked about it and um you know i think that's i think i'm i'm constantly looking for that in my new role now in in business i i, I always try to find that chip that's going to just put me in the mode of of i don't care if i'm tired it's midnight i got to get this done and i'm going to get it done before i go to bed that type of feeling so did Coughlin add to that chip? Because I think of, of I, I think of coaches as CEOs, especially in football, where the, you're managing so many people, and then you're getting demands from your corporate side. And I'm sure it's a, a different handful for every coach. But as it relates to an NFL head coach, if you think of a coach as a CEO, did you learn anything from Coughlin's CEO style? And did he create those chips? Like, did he know Did he know that because that kind of stuff motivated you, that let me create one and get and get JT, like, fired up? Um, later in my career, at first, like, Coughlin's the type of coach where he treats everybody, he treats everybody pretty much the same. Like, everybody will say, like, oh, he treated Eli different. He really didn't. But he, he, he shows you a different level of respect and understanding of where you are once you've proven to him that, like, I can count on this guy. But, it, but, but from the perspective of just how hard he is on you, that never really changed. Um, so I think with Coach, man, you know, I think it's well documented. His first you know, couple of years at the Giants, people really, really did not like him. Like, I, I, when I see him into his face, I can say to him, Coach, you know, my first year at the Giants, I really did not like you. But I think, I don't know what happened. Like, there's obviously a lot of, um, you know, theories around something that happened, you know, in his second to third year that changed his, like, out, you know, outset towards players. But something happened. And he started to show a different side of him that obviously allowed us to kind of open up as a football team and, and, and embrace him. And obviously then we started winning. But – he he was very keen on figuring out what what made you tick, um, and he always I think early in his career he always thought it was just like him being a, a you know a dick to you, but it was other things right. And I, I think for me personally, I, I I learned from that. I learned from watching him kind of go through the first couple of years there and not be successful. And the only reason why he wasn't successful because he couldn't relate to players. He didn't meet players where they were. And that's hard in the NFL and in, in, in any um, professional sport, especially when you got guys who are making more than the coaches, right? Like, I make straight hand said something very famously to him. It was like, they're going to fire you before they fire me, which is true. Yeah. So, you know, he had to figure out a way to relate to players. And, like, the way I've adopted that is when I became captain of the team, 
you you know as well as I know when you when you're trying to get 53 alpha males with their own personality, their own egos to pull the rope the same way in order for you to win, everybody's not going to respond to me jumping down your throat or or me patting you on the back. You got you got you might have a subset of guys who respond differently and 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 they're going to start pulling that rope. But if you took that same approach to the other subset of guys, they're going to be the guy who's fighting you, right? So I think I learned from that perspective with Coach Coffin and seeing him navigate that until he, he fine tweaked it, which allowed me to you know, surpass some of the headaches of me trying to do it as the captain of the team. You know, it's crazy, bro. I got to just tell you, um, the, you could lead a a team for sure i don't know if you want to coach and i know that you lead in business <laughs> but do coaches rub off it's like the role of a coach um i just think about it as it relates to mentors because i know how important mentors have been to me throughout my career um yeah. and and whether they knew it or not right um but do the coaches have a real like is that really something that players look for is to have that effect from a coach to really have that relationship or is it not a, like is, is that not something that you know you see Parcells and, and Lawrence Taylor he talked so much about the impact he had on his life do you feel like that's something that is still very prevalent in the NFL right now it's, I think it's different uh and I say that with all due respect with all respect to the younger group of guys who come in like I was my time in the league was kind of a cusp of the old guard and the new guard, right? I was right in the midst of of both, right? I still had relationships with the Harry Carsons and the LTs of the world, but you know, was right on the cusp of like the the you know, the Odells and 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 that group of guys who came in later, right? So, uh, I would say that my my vintage, uh, we looked at coaches as a, a, a means to get us where we want to go. And what I mean by that is, like, I didn't expect Coach Kaufman to be my friend. I didn't expect him to talk about, you know, my family or anything like that, right? I expected him to put us in position to win football games and go about this in a business, right? I, but, like, now it just seems like the league is moving more towards the younger, more flamboyant coach that can, you know, that probably has a social media presence and, and, and can kind of relate to the younger, younger, younger player. Um, so for me, it was it was it was business as usual. I looked at Coach Kaufman as a person who was gonna be hard on me to a point to get me to where I need to be to be able to perform on a Sunday as as at my highest capacity, and didn't look for anything outside of that. He didn't have to talk to me. He didn't have to say anything else to me. As long as we 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 found a mutual respect in the the process of winning football games, totally fine with me. I don't think that's the norm now. Uh, and again, I'm 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 speaking at it from a, a, a outsider looking in. But what I see now, it seems like more coaches are trying to be and and are in a lot of ways forced to be more friends than uh, with their with their players than anything else. To be honest with you, but I think being able listen, I I, I actually probably think that in a lot of ways that's a good thing because. Sure. The truth is the NFL has lagged behind a bit in what I believe should be more focus and more of a impact from their star players and from the players in general. And you see it shifting. Um, the NBA, it has shifted. And now it is a in healthy partnership, which means that the players in the league don't always agree. Players in ownership don't always agree. But the players have earned a legitimate seat at the table. And within their respective organizations, superstar players like a Deshaun Watson don't get disconnected from ownership. They don't get disconnected from the process. I can tell you that firsthand. Yep. So when you see what's happening now, are you like, but you know better. See, like I don't, but I can say that from my vantage point, but you, you've been in the NFL and you've been around the NFL now for however long. Do you think that there's a misconception or what am I seeing is right? Like, is it time for what's happening with Deshaun and for players to be able to control their own destiny a bit more and not feel this kind of like restrictive feeling that I do believe NFL contracts and NFL organizations in some way keep players feeling? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I, and I do, like, I don't want it to be misconstrued that 
I do think the movement from you know my time in the NFL to to what's going on now and what's starting to go on a little bit more, and I agree with you, we're definitely lagging behind the NBA, no question about it. Uh, but I do think we're moving or trending a little bit towards that North Star, which is players like the Shine, like the Holmes, and and so on and so forth. And I hate to say that because you know I, I intuitively hate quarterbacks, but uh, players like that should have a little bit more ownership. Should because like think about it, right? They are they are the driving force of your franchise. You should take their input on things. You should understand uh, how they tick because if you can figure out how these guys tick and what's going to propel them to put forth, you know, that hundred percent effort, right. Then, you, then that's just, that's just good business sense. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. And, and, and plus and adding into the fact that most of these guys now understand that they are brands and they're looking at themselves as brands and maybe they've surrounded themselves with teams that, that, that move and feel like that. Um, I think that the NFL is losing out on a lot of value that these guys and, and, and people around them can create because they understand their brand. Yeah. Well, I think what you just said was the most important was like they're missing out on a value and a, a point of view and a perspective that they don't have. And the sure. ones that embrace it, and that's why you see it with NBA, in the NBA with ownership more, you see it in the way that marketing happens. You see it in the way that the conversations, communication, everything. Well, well think about it like, like this, and this is a simple way of looking at it, but think about this. Who has more followers on social media? The Houston Texans or Deshaun Jock, uh, Watson? Exactly. Right? How, how many people are going to be – how many more people value his quote-unquote opinion than the organization? Yeah, and you know what the truth is, is that the idea of how much money they pay you being a reason to – uh, compromise a bit on that or to give sure. in on that is stupid when there's 31 other teams would pay him the same thing and more. You can't judge it by, oh, we pay you. It's the same way you should treat an important executive in business. Now, from a moral position, yes, you should treat everybody the same way and that does not happen in the world, right? It's not going to happen within an organization. But no. from a professional standpoint, I would guarantee you that there's not a player across an NFL roster that doesn't expect that the quarterback would be treated and communicated with differently, just like Aaron Donald should be and would be, right? Yeah, I, I, literally, you took the words out of my mouth. Uh, and I was going to say, yeah, I mean, obviously, in our league, this league is driven by the quarterback position for a lot of reasons. But like Aaron Donald is a MB, you know, MVP type player. The Khalil Max of the world, the uh, you know JJ Watts, you know he, he's he's a little older now, but like the the impact that JJ and, and people like him had on their franchises, I don't I don't get why. Well, I do get, but uh, I do think it's it's definitely smarter from a business standpoint and a bottom line standpoint to to invest in understanding how these guys tick and understanding what their thoughts are around the the growth and yeah the growth of the team. Yeah. And that's not like, well, like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you take in consideration what your quarterback thinks as far as a head coaching perspective? Exactly, especially that, that makes no sense to me. Especially when you have Deshaun Watson, right? So there are young quarterbacks in the league, maybe that if you choose to put that young quarterback in that position, just like in any company, then maybe that person has a little bit less say with the board, right, or a little sure. bit less say with ownership. But when you put someone in a position and then they turn into Deshaun Watson, then they may have 1,000% earned more say with the board and more say with the organization. And it's, um, it shouldn't come to this because now if I'm the Houston Texans, I have to analyze this situation and go, this is bad for business. Every way you cut it, we did not win in this. And oh. they got to trade Deshaun Watson, in my opinion, because they – they don't deserve they don't deserve him at this point, but that's not a reason to trade him. But um, the the players that take ownership of their career, that's happened off the field a lot in sports, and then that's when players have sometimes gotten this reputation, or leagues or athletes in general get this reputation as going broke. Right? There's the famous documentary um, that they did. I don't know if it's famous, but the documentary they did on Thirty for Thirty, ESPN, whatever it was. Um, I don't, I don't think that that's the truth. I think that NBA players especially really know what the hell's going on. Um, I don't think you're going to catch many NBA players unless someone robbed them. Uh, 
that are going to go broke and lose their money because they just are making a lot and they know a lot. Their their access is incredible. They're smart. They have role models and LeBron and, and all of these different people. Um, but the NFL, for some reason, still does get the reputation. The NFL gets a reputation and you still hear stories of a lot of players that lose money and lose a ton of money. So now you are in this position. Let's get back to the position that I introduced you as because it's a lot of words. But you tell me (laughs) your position at Goldman Sachs. And then what do you see now in the NFL and then sports in general about that reputation, about players go broke, they run out of their money? I think I know the answer to some degree, but I want to hear it from you from this Goldman Sachs platform now. And please tell Uh, me your your title, bro. (laughs) Uh, it's very simple. I'm I'm a, I'm I'm vice president of private wealth. Just leave it at that. Um, but uh, the team that I I help lead um, is um, the Partners Coverage Group. You you mentioned that, and basically what the Partners Coverage Group is, we um, in in '99 when the, when Goldman went public, as you can imagine, a lot of our partners and heads of divisions within the firm. Um, looked on their balance sheet, their personal balance sheet, and, and they had a lot more zeros behind it. So in order for them to be able to focus on what made them that money and what they were doing on a daily basis, um, Goldman created the Partners Coverage Group, which we we managed all the funds of yeah, probably 99% of the other partners. So our clients on the internal side are the partners of the firm. If you know any partner of the firm, we, we probably manage their money. Um, and I was kind of brought in to be a a resource and a, and, a, and a door opener for outside capital of the firm. So the expertise of that team, which we have 40, 42 members of this team, if you think about trying to figure out a way to add value to um, the most sophisticated clientele that I think exists in the world, right? I'm trying to add value to a guy who, who runs the division. Um, that expertise should be shared with outside, outside people of the firm as well. So that's that's the team we sit on. Uh, and to ask you a question about NFL specifically, I do think, again, we have trended well since those documentaries came out about broke. I do think that guys are now starting to understand um, the value of their money, the value of having uh, great counsel and people being around them. I think the NFL. Although, by my praise, is slower to to this adoption, but I think the NFL is starting to do a really good job of uh, providing resources to the, the guys who are coming into the league from a financial standpoint, right? They obviously can't uh, say, oh, you should talk to Justin at Goldman Sachs or you should talk to J.P. Moore, whatever. But they are starting to add, add in and, and, and provide avenues for people to be connected with financial advisors, financial planners, um, putting programming around that. So I do think it's trending the right way. Um, in my own capacity, you know, I've just reached out to all of my guys and anyone that I have connection with in the in the leagues and just say, listen, I don't, most of my clients are titans of business, um, you know, CEOs, founders, um, hedge funds, endowments. Those are the type of clients that I deal with on a daily basis. But like, I am at the cusp of a lot of financial knowledge and a lot of financial expertise, whether that be myself or my team. And I, and I, and I open it up to, to all the guys that I have relationships with. If I, if they just want a set of second eyes, a set, a set of, you know, being able to look at their, their stuff and, and give them an understanding of how they own it, who, you know, what they're paying on it, what they should be paying on it, what they should be doing differently, all that stuff. I'm that's, that's what I think you're starting to see more people like me venture into it. And I'm not the only one. I think, I think more guys have started to say, all right, Justin went this route. Why not? Why can't I do it? So, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much how I look at it. I do think that it's, it's trending the right way, but it's, it's this should have been trending this way years ago. Right. And um, but hopefully, you know, with with people like myself and, and being able to understand both sides of the coin here, understand what it takes to to dedicate that time needed to perfect your craft on the sports side of things, but also having the understanding and expertise on the financial side of things and and marrying the two, um, that we'll continue to walk this thing in the right direction that, that those type of documentaries no longer exist. 
Justin, I kind of want to understand a little bit further what your position is at Golden Sachs because I'm a little bit confused. So in 99, right, Golden Sachs goes public and all the partners, which means people that work at Goldman, not have invested within Goldman, they see their balance sheets skyrocket. And so I'm assuming already that if you are an executive at 99 and Goldman and and then you balance sheet skyrockets, why doesn't why don't you manage your own money yourself as opposed <laughs> to giving yeah. it for this new teams for your new team your cultural I forgot what the name of your team was forgive me Part, partners but coverage partners coverage sure as opposed to just running it yourself some did some did but like you also got to think about like what allows them to continue to to focus on their like i just give an example right if, if there's a partner who runs um the real estate arm of goldman sachs right and he wants to continue running or she wants to continue running that real estate arm right and not really divulge any of his or her energy uh away from what has made them you know that wealthy right then you you definitely and like i'd say that's why i say like the most sophisticated clientele like obviously the partners of the firm can manage their own money and like but like we're not doing a hundred percent of of the asset allocation the 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 research and so on and so forth they they understand the business in some cases better than i understand the business so again just adding value to them in this capacity is is what our job is on a day-to-day basis but yeah you're right there are there are some there, trust me, there were some people in '99, and obviously I wasn't. You know, obviously I wasn't here then. But like, there's some people who 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 got that that liquidity event and said, you know what, I'm gonna go start my own family office and I'm gonna leave Goldman Sachs. So it, it's definitely, you know, uh, a, a case by case situation when it comes to it. So listen up. Now, now that you're at Goldman, right, and we talked a bit about this, I want to just understand a few things for our listeners, right? Because this is asked a lot by people that are, I guess, layman's to the sports world to some degree, sure. which is like this novice of all these players go broke, et cetera. And I know that's changed. And like you mm-hmm. just said, I think you're doing your part to make sure that's changed. But it happens at times, right? So let's talk about the economics a bit, if you don't mind, because the, the information is public. Do you know offhand how much money you made in your career? On the field or off? Or- um, let's on the field. <laughs> on, on the field. Now I kind of want to know which one is more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's start, uh, let's start with on the field to see how my point unfolds here. On the field first. On the field, do I know? Yes. How much? Uh, just just south of fifty million bucks. All right. So let's say there was no off the field. How does somebody in the NFL in sports usually? Again, I'm don't think of this as me because I know sure. the answer. But how does it happen that somebody comes out of college, plays in the NFL, makes fifty million dollars, and retires with no money? Explain this to me. <laughs> oh man, how long how long you want this answer to be? Well, for the um, record, for listeners that may have tuned in late, even though I don't think you tune in late to a pod, Justin did not go broke. He's actually crushing America and crushing the world with his success. However, uh, players do. So I want to talk about sure. a player theoretically makes $50 million sure. like you did in your career, ends his career with no money. Um, well, first of all, let's just take taxes. So just, we're going to deal in round numbers. So let's just say you, you pay taxes and you're paying 50%. So that 50 is 25 uh, then you want to talk about agency fees, and that's custom. You know, some guys pay more, so so let's just say, let's just say, um, I don't know, let's say three percent. So now you're dealing with um, twenty uh, round number, twenty three million. Yeah. I know that's not, I know that's not accurate. It's a little less, say, but let's, let's say twenty three. All right, so you got twenty three million after taxes, after 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 agency fees. You buy a house. And like, let's just be honest. Most athletes want the biggest, baddest house on the block. So let's just say, with twenty-three million, I feel comfortable buying a five million dollar home. You got eighteen. All right, you got cars. You got, you know, you might have insurance. You got, um, you know, you got um, life insurance. You got um, just daily spending. And like, that's the biggest thing that I deal with athletes 
entertainers and then like is just understanding your spinning habits. But like I, you know, I've seen guys spend a million dollars a year and have nothing. Like this is I'm not saying investing. I'm saying just spending. You know, and it can be more than that. So you, you let's just say I played 11 years. After all the 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 stuff from a tax and fee based perspective, I had 23. After I bought a house, I had 18. Uh, we're not talking about upkeep of the house. We're not talking about, you know, all the stuff that comes in and actually owning a house. But I'm just doing it from a round number standpoint. 18. Now you talk about spending a million dollars a year. That's for me in 11 years. That would be 11 million bucks. Now it's seven. Right. I haven't I haven't invested. Let's just say let's just say I, I invest in like my 401k and all this stuff, which you can't touch through the NFL until a later date in your life. Right, but you got seven million bucks, and now you, you I haven't even talked about cars. <laughs> I haven't talked about kids, kids schooling. I haven't talked about buying your wife things and so on and so forth. Like, so you can imagine like that that fifty million that's dwindled down to seven million without really even talking about anything. Okay, and like, so and like and like and like people don't understand. People don't, most guys don't go broke like while they're in the league. They go broke within that next five years. So in this in this this situation, we got a guy who's played eleven years, made fifty million bucks. He's walking away from the game with seven million. I know these numbers are raw, but now you think about the lifestyle that they've lived, and we haven't even, we haven't even thought about investing like their mom or their dad or their uncle or their cousin wants to invest in this restaurant or this or another or whatever, right? So we ain't even talked about any of that stuff. But like now you think about like, okay, you're out of the league now. We ain't talked about private planes and flights and all that stuff. We ain't talked about jewelry, none of that. So now you're out of the league and you, you the hardest thing for guys to, to understand, especially back then where they really probably didn't dive deep and, and didn't have people around them to help them understand how they're, they're managing their money and so on and so forth. Now they're thinking like, okay, I made 50 million bucks. I can still live this lifestyle. And like, you know, but like they made, they were doing this lifestyle when they were still bringing in money. This was with a time when guys didn't really have that second career, right? They didn't have, they hadn't planned for the NFL meeting, not for long. So they're not bringing any more money now. So now it's just a, a direct spin. And you can see how everything is trending south. And like the hardest thing for them to, to, to do is to stop buying jewelry, stop going out and taking their buddies out on trips and, and taking a posse of 20, you know, 15, 20 people out to restaurants and so on and so forth. That's kind of how the numbers work when you think about it from the perspective of how people can go broke. And obviously 50 million bucks is a, is a nice career. Think about the guys who made 20 and how that, that narrative continues to like dwindle down. Yeah. That's, by the way, you broke that shit down very well. Oh, D. Um, it's beautiful. So how'd you do it differently? So that didn't happen. Um, I told you, man, I grew up in Kelton, Alabama. And like how I lived my life in a lot of ways before I got to a place where I knew I was set for life. Like there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a moment in time where I kind of looked at my finances like, okay, now I can add a little bit more risk. I can do a little bit more things. But up until that time, I was, listen, I was the guy that, Everyone, everyone thought I like bought like different cars. I didn't. I, 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 I went to uh, dealerships and said, listen, I like this Cadillac like Escalade. If I do this signing for you or this whatever for you, can I drive off a lot with this thing for free? So, so I, I, had a, I had dealerships that would send me cars for free. And obviously I would do you know, things in return to like you know, add value to, to that dealership. But I didn't spend a lot of money on cars. I've never worn jewelry, as you can, you can see. Everyone asked me what time it is, and I love watches, but like everyone asked me what time it is, and people literally with a hundred thousand dollar watch on would go right to their iPhone. Yeah. Right. So like for me, that's how I did it. I married a, a woman who would tell I <laughs> I never forget it, man. I signed a, a, a second deal. Um and it was pretty good. And um I thought that I needed to like buy my wife this 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 expensive car. So I bought her a car. And it was really nice. And I drove it I drove it into the driveway and she literally told me to take it back that day. So I I I got people around me who understood that like, yeah, the NFL stands for not for long. And like I just I just always have not really 
had value in all the things that most athletes look at. I want to invest. I wanted to make sure that I took care of my parents, uh, make sure I took care of my hometown, uh, make sure I gave back through charity. But outside of that, man, it's from a spending standpoint, I, I never really spent a lot. Now, now I've kind of opened up my into being more invested in more of the, the long-term risk assets. But like when I was playing, I just wanted to say, listen, man, give me, you know, for the people who have managed my money, I want to be in safe assets. And at that time, obviously interest rates were a lot better. So you could kind of, you could, you could, you could, you could make more of a return without going a little bit further out on the spectrum of risk. So, uh, you know, for those, from that perspective, given that my spending was low, I could make a decent return without risking a lot of capital. And uh, I had the right people around me who, who talked me off the ledge when I, I had those moments of thinking, oh, I got to keep up with the Joneses. Um, I think that's, that's part of the reasons why, you know, I think we're so, so, so in a good spot now. Man, you sound like a real banker, bro. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment. No, nah, I'll just play with you. It is a compliment. Um, so Goldman Sachs, one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most prestigious brands in the world. Honestly, I, I, I see them in that luxury space with Rolex, with Mercedes, with Michael Jordan, right? Like these <laughs> iconic brands. And I also know that you getting your job there is not just because you're Justin Tuck at nah, all. Man. At all. Nah, man. So... <laughs> Um, tell us how you got your job. And, and I know you went and got um, a business degree. Was that after you were done playing or while you were playing? Nah, right when I retired, I, I, um, I went back to Warden and got my MBA uh, from, from Warden. And then from there, how did you get to Goldman? Yeah, so I again, I, when I was playing, I made a lot of relationships with people, whether that was through just them being fans of mine on the field, you know, some of the work we were doing in communities for, you know, the charities and the, uh, and the, and the, and the philanthropy stuff, the work we were doing, me and my wife. Um, and a lot of those relationships were in banking. A lot of them were hedge funds and, and, and endowments and, 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 and private equity, you know, principles and so on and so forth. And like, I always live by this creed of like, while you're hot, make relationships that's going to be valued to you when you're not hot. So, for example, we won a Super Bowl, man. I was calling any and every executive in New York City and not to say, um, yo, you should take me out to dinner or you should take me out because you know, I'm, I'm a Super Bowl champion. No, I was saying like, I'm, I'm interested in your business. I'm interested on in what you do on a day to day basis. I have no clue what it is, but. Will you, will you take a few moments out of your time to have coffee, right? And then when you, you, you meet these people, I was genuinely trying to understand how they had been successful. And like the, the, the thing I've learned from that perspective is, you know, my board of directors is a, is a group of women and men that I, I've made relationships with throughout the, uh, that time frame. And they're like, a lot of them tell me like the reason why they wanted to work with me and help me along the way was because I showed I showed interest in what they did, not from a selfish standpoint, but from a, a real wanting to understand it. So from their perspective, it's like this, this, this all-star football player is coming and taking me to lunch and literally asking me about my day, asking me about what I do on a day-to-day basis. Isn't that supposed to be the other way around? Most athletes think like this exactly supposed to ask me about this touchdown or this sack or all this. No, I didn't want to talk about any of that stuff. I wanted to talk about why you invested in this company. Um, you know, when you think about whatever, what, 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 do you, what do you think about here? So long story short, that gave me a lot of relationships in the, in the banking world. So when I went to Warden, I just started asking these guys and these girls, you know, what do you see from me? And why, you know, given the things that you know about me, what spaces should I be looking at? Um, and lo and behold, they talked about, you know, private wealth. They talked about um, real estate REITs and so on and so forth. So I just started doing my homework. And started calling people from Goldman Sachs that I had relationships with. Obviously, you know, there are some people that, as you know, as well as I do. But um, long story short, man, I got called in one day by the CEO at the time. And he was like, listen, Justin, uh, you need to come work for me. And that was pretty, <laughs> that was pretty much it. And at the time, I was working for a certain person named David Robinson at his real estate uh, fund. Um, and... And I just called David. I was like, listen, David, I got this opportunity. I'm a very loyal person, by the way, not to pick up my own self, but like 
And I called him. I was like, but I promised David I was going to work for him. And he said to me, "It's like, yo, you're, you're the smartest dumb person I know if you don't take this opportunity to go to Sachs. Yep. So um, that's kind of like the, the fast and quick version of, of, of how I got to Goldman. I like it. The admiral. The admiral with the assist, yeah, bro. That guy is, Selfless man. Guy. Selfless man. He did the same thing for Tim Duncan, man. Stepped out of the way. And yeah. and that's that's also a rarity. Um, all right. Well, listen. Before I let you go, we're going to talk about one more prestigious, luxurious brand. To me, <laughs> one of the greatest brands in the world. To me, one of the most iconic brands in the world, which is the New York football giants. So... I want to get a few rapid-fire answers from you, bro, because you know I could talk Giants with you for the rest of my life, um, and we do at times. So the few yep. things I want to know is going into 2007 and going into 2011, going into both Super Bowls, day of the game, be honest with me, which one or both did you feel like you were going to win? truly feel like you were going to win both no 100%. question now were you scared a bit more of the 07 team or was there no because i know in 11 i i knew you were going to win by the way for the 11 game i was like or the 12 the game was in 2012 but for that team like i wasn't scared of that patriots team but i yeah. knew you were going to win for 07 i had that like romantic feeling of I knew you were going to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, um, God damn, this team is good. Well, first of all, it's, it's, it's both. The answer is both, but for different reasons. In 2007, we had played them early in the year, and we didn't scheme them at all, and we played them pretty decently, and we was in the game and should have won the game, to be honest with you. But, like, we, we knew we was playing the playoffs. We already knew we was playing Tampa Bay. Most of that week, we was focused on Tampa Bay. We just... 2007, the matchups worked in our favor. Our D-line versus their O-line. You know, Plaxico being able to do what he does and, and, and like, open up the middle of the field, which allowed you know, our tight ends to play well. Our running game versus that, we just, we just felt. But also, I was 23 at the time. I didn't know any different, right? Like, at that point in time, my mind was invincible. Like, we're in the Super Bowl and we're playing these dudes? Tom Brady is going to be at, at six yards all game? No matter if he drops back to eight, he's going to try to step back up his like, And that guy's got to block us? Yeah. It's, so, like, from that perspective, it was an arrogance around the fact that I didn't know any better. It was, like, my first incoming of, like, being in the Super Bowl. In 2011, I'll be honest with you, I had a little bit of doubt there because I was like, all right, this guy Tom Brady has done this for a long time now. He's <laughs> – that guy, like, putting him in this one-game situation, that, you know, that's – and, like, we've done it once. We had that miracle, yep. quote-unquote, game to beat them in Arizona. Now it's this. It's like this would be his, like, pay, payback tour. So, like, that was creeping in my mind a little bit. But, like, now I'm the captain of the team. Yep. And I, I just – I felt so confident in our guys, man. So – but also to the point where I just knew no matter what you feel about Eli or anything about the job, we just showed up in big games. Like, yep. Eli showed up in big games. So, I just I, – when it came to that – that moment, I just knew Eli was going to show up. I knew our defense was going to hold hold it like we had, had done all that playoff run. And and so enough. It, but like also in the moment, you just think like you play the game in your brain and you say like, what's going to happen in this game? I just knew we were going to get it into the fourth quarter where we had dominated teams all year long. We had always played okay up to the third. But once the fourth quarter came, we found ways to win games. That was our MO. And so enough, that's exactly how the game went. Oh, my God. I can't even listen to you talk about it without, like, getting chills and bugging out, man. Do you – do you – so, like, my brother and I, for instance, like, we'll put on either one of those, like, playoff runs. Number, sure. If something's going on – like, when the pandemic broke, I'm like, yo, let's put on the 2007 Super Bowl, bro. These are the greatest moments of our life. Do you feel the same way? Like, do you just sit there, daydream? Because those are not just big moments in your life. Those are big football moments yeah, in the history. Yeah. I do and I don't. I do because I want my – when it comes on, my kids get super excited to watch it because they, they didn't get to really live it. You know, my, the second one, my oldest son was two. So he didn't really get to live it, right? So, like – but, like, they go to school and, like, they know that their their friends tell them, yo, you're Justin Tuck's dad. I mean, son, right? That's your dad. Like, so he gets it a little bit. So whenever they come on, I kind of watch them with him just so I can see him, like, gig out of the fact that I, I sacked Tom Brady, right? 
But also, like, I, I'm wired differently, man. When I think about those Super Bowls, I think about missed opportunities. And, you know, 08 is – every time I, someone says Super Bowl to me, that's exactly what goes in my head. So I'm like – I you know, I'm super excited about the fact we won two, but I'm, I'm the guy that always looks at – Yep. it won't allow me to really, really celebrate it because I know the best team we had was 08. Yep, so Gianni, and, Gianni, the next year after that, they – they went twelve and four, but they were like twelve and one or twelve and two. They should have finished the season yeah. fourteen and two. And then Plaxico, I'm sure you've heard this story, shot himself in the club, like literally shot himself in the leg with a gun in the club. But um, by the way, which sounds like nothing now in the world we live in. Like, <laughs> I know, right? Like that he should he yeah. should have just played that weekend, like yeah. whatever. Oh no, he got hurt. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I feel you because I talk about that with my. Um, with my brother again too sometimes because that team I remember when you played Baltimore at home and that was <laughs> destruction, bro. That was absolute I think, I destruction. Think, I think we we like and people forget Baltimore had the best D line. They still had Ed Reed. They had uh, Suggs. They had Ray Lewis. We put up forty four on them and like I think Eli probably had like hundred eighty yards passing. Most of it was just like running. You ran, by the way, no one had run for over 100 yards, and I think Jacobs and Bradshaw did that game, and Derek Ward. Derek I think Ward. We had, I think we had almost almost 400 yards rushing or something. It's something like that might be inaccurate, but I know we had over 200 rushing against them. Yep. It was like crazy. Yep. Then, then think about it. We beat Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh. We beat Arizona. We, we demolished Arizona in Arizona, and that's the two teams that go on to play in the Super Bowl. Um, you so yeah, that. man. Don't, I I tell people all the time, man. Everybody talks about two-time Super Bowl champion. My my mind won't allow me to say anything other than I got eight fingers that are really jealous of two. <laughs> I respect and, that, bro. I respect and that's that. That's just that's just how I always approach it, man. But I said chip that's still sitting there. Um, all right, last question on the Giants. You mentioned Eli always showing up. So Eli, you know I love Eli Manning, bro. And Eli. For sure. um, Eli's somebody that I think over the next maybe three or four years, I'm going to make a point of it, whether he wants me to, which he probably doesn't want me to. But Eli belongs in the Hall of Fame because I, I not think even a question, not even a question, because I think we need to really focus on the things that come with being in that position. Like we talked about earlier, the things that come with playing in New York, which we talked about earlier, longevity and being able to do it for as long as he did it in any sport, I have come to respect more than anything. Um, and then showing up in big games. And if we're not going to reward someone for that, then like it's just a stats-driven thing. And if it's just a stats-driven thing, then he still has it, right? Because he played long enough to put up these stats. So um, right. I think I think you're going to hear a lot more about me uh, recklessly talking about Eli making the Hall of Fame. But I assume you agree, and I assume that anyone that played with him, except maybe at the end of his career, would agree. That's not a that's not an assumption. Uh, I do agree 100. percent And I'll tell you why, real briefly. Right. All right. Let's. What do we value from our quarterbacks? We value championships, wins, check, and on top of that, Super Bowl MVPs, check, check. So he has that. Let's just move that out the way. All right. We value stats. He's top ten in every statistical category that we we care about from a quarterback perspective. Check. All right. Move that out the way. Uh, legacy he did everything that was asked upon him in the way that you never had to worry about him how he showed up how he represented the team you know from a family man perspective uh you know all that right the 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 eyeballs on him in new york city the eyeballs on him of being Peyton's little brother um check 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 even in the moments where i i was you know, I retired by the end, but like when they they stopped his streak, he handled that with just class, and and I probably would have been throwing stuff in the locker room, all type of stuff. Handled that with class. So like, and plus, just on top of the fact that he is such a genuinely good dude, right? If if I'm looking at Hall of Fame, right, and and the Hall of Fame to me has always been about what you did on the field, but also what what you did to make people around you better, and what you did from a just from a you know. It's, it's more than just football stats, right? I think, I think, my, my vision on it. And I think Eli checks all those boxes, right? I really do. And uh, I know I'm biased because I played with the guy, but when I, when I look at his time in the league, you think about, 
you know, the guys who, who played quarterback position in his height, you got, you got, obviously you got Tom who's first ballot, no question. You got, you got Breeze first ballot, no question. After that, it's this group of guys of Ben Roethlisberger, him, um, uh, Philip Rivers, Philip Rivers. Sorry. Those three, I think they all make it. I think, Oh yeah. I don't, I'm not saying first ballot. That's not what I'm saying. I just think like these guys need to be in the Hall of Fame within, you know, three years of them coming up for the eligibility. I think. I agree with you. And and Big Ben will definitely be first ballot. Yeah. Um, Personally, I think Philip Rivers is a scrub. Wow. <gasps> I do not co-sign that message on the out of office pod. Ba 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 ba. Listen, it's coming listen. coming here from Gianni. I, I we'll we'll talk offline about that, but like. Phil Rivers is a dog to me. Uh, he never he never won the big game and so on and so forth, and that's that's cool. You know, Dan Dan Marino never won a big game, but Philip is again top ten in all statistical categories. Uh, obviously, it would look better if he had a chip, but nah, he's Hall of Fame to me. I, if he's not Hall of Fame, then then, then how did what what how well, do you yeah. define like the guy played he he played sixteen seventeen years. He has you know. I don't know how many Pro Bowls, eight. Like, I just don't I don't get it. And I know that the league has changed to make the quarterback position a little bit more dynamic and, and like you can't compare like the the Joe Montana and the and the Terry Bradshaw and those type of stats. But like if you think about the time frame in which he played, he's probably top five of the of the position. Yep. Now you're right. You're hundred percent right. I think And trust that- me, y'all are putting me in a really, really precarious uh, position right here talking about quarterbacks y'all know i really don't like quarterbacks <laughs> well i think yeah. like the bottom line is champion <laughs> and hall of famer are different things by the way this is literally the last thing as it relates to players that don't make the championship dan marino one never won a super bowl they should have won like the way i look at it is dan marino should have won a super bowl straight up should have won a super bowl man um i said dan marino should have won a super bowl the bottom nah, line. He should have. He should have. He should have uh, won. And like, I think, won. I think it's, I think it's good for the game when like those type of figures in the game win, right? I, I think it's. That's why I'm always looking for. The 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 wealth to be spread. I don't. I mean, like, obviously, if the Giants aren't winning, I don't care. But like, like I, I'm kind of wishing that that Tom will like kind of bow out as the greatest of all time and start to give other guys an opportunity <laughs> because I just think like. There's so many great quarterbacks, you know, that might not necessarily like Tom is like the Jordan, the Jordan of his era. Like, think about the guys that Jordan kept from winning championships: the Barclays, the Ewings, the Carl Malones, the John Stocktons, the blah 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 blahs. Tom, Tom, in a lot of ways, have, has has been that that person for a, a, a lot of great quarterbacks. And like, obviously, you know, Peyton and and, uh, and Roethlisberger won theirs, but just think about how many more they would have won. Think about you know, probably Breeze would have won one in in in, uh, in in San Diego when he had Ladanian out there that year. Like it's, it's it's a lot of guys that Tom has kept kept from Super Bowl chips, and I'm kind of wishing that he would he would kind of bow out and, get, and and be able to spread the wealth a little bit. All right, bro. Well, you know what? He didn't he didn't keep Eli from winning his two or you. Nah, so man. I'm nah, good, man. man. All right. Well, listen, bro. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I learned a lot about my friend today. Appreciate it. You got great perspective on life, on business, on everything. And um, I'm uh, proud to call you my uh, my bro. Hey, man, I appreciate y'all having me. God bless. And, and by the way, everyone go subscribe. I'm a subscriber. I got to catch up. I'm, I'm three. I'm three away from being caught up. But I'm gonna yeah, catch up. I love that, bro. I'm gonna Thank catch you. Up.